If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 235. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So you had a busy week this week. I, I meant, oh, I meant to ask you, uh, did you did you get your car registered finally? I did, yes. Congratulations on that. Um, thank you. I actually got it registered like two months ago, but I failed to get the stickers on. Oh, yeah, um, okay. Well, so, I had seen the expired sticker on your plate, right. and I didn't realize that you'd... Well, uh, the, when I got it registered, it, um, it was raining, and so I didn't want to put the, the stickers I on, see. and so I yeah. just kind of put them in that little cubby, you know, in between the mm-hmm. seats, mm-hmm. and so and this, so I finally got them on, yes. And how long do you have before they expire? The end of next month. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So the entire year, you, uh, okay. Yeah. I made a mistake. It's okay. But I have it now, and, you know, shut up. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> at least at least it wasn't a repair that you were putting off. I remember years ago, I had an old beat-up car. I think it was actually the first car that I ever owned, and the muffler hanger had fallen off the back, and so the muffler was kind of dragging a little bit. Mm-hmm. And my solution was uh, a coat hanger, you know. Sure, absolutely. Wrap that up there. But then the coat hanger rusted through, and I was caught in the middle of nowhere uh, with the muffler dragging on the uh, interstate. So what I did was pull over, and I found a like a long rock, and I wedged it between the edge of the muffler and and the fender. Oh, wow. And just kept it up there until I uh, was able to uh, find a new coat hanger. That seems muy dangeroso. Yeah, well, I was a dangerous young man in those days. Sure. Well, as made apparent by your hair. (laughs) You get to go first today, my love. What you got? Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, this is very exciting. I found the other day that all U.S. currency issued since 1861 is still valid and redeemable at its full face value. Shut up. Since 1861. Is this, is this a, uh, a segment on coins and, uh, and money? No. It's, 
Nerd. Not coins, just dollar, like paper money. It's Cat has a pretty elaborate coin collection. <laughs> and I think it's endearing. Anyway, go ahead, nerd. This is just about paper money. Okay. So the 13 colonies, despite opposition from Great Britain had their own currency by the time of the American Revolution. And this is according to uh, Insider.com. So they were typically expressed in Spanish reales as well as British shillings, pounds, and pence. And the reason was that uh, North America at the time, commerce was conducted with foreign coins because we didn't have our own money. Um, So when we started kind of making our own money, uh, the colonies did, they they made them in the currencies that they knew and they understood. Knew. Sure, it makes sense. However, by 1763, the British deemed colonial currency illegal. And although Congress called for the creation of the first national mint in 1792, the Constitution only granted authority with respect to coins, as outlined in Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. You know how we love the Constitution here. Uh, Congress could create and regulate coin currency, both foreign and domestic, but there's no specific reference to paper money. Therefore, private banks could issue paper currency that competed with government notes. So local colonial private banks were making their own money, which, what? How does that make any sense at all? I did not know that. So they could just crank out their own money. Right. And I mean, I assume that it would be redeemable within a certain distance from that bank. I Mm. mean, how does that Well, you had to get to the bank. Function, right? Anyway, so in 1861, to finance the Civil War, Congress sanctioned the issuance of paper currency known as demand notes. And that referred to the idea that when you gave it to someone, the the money could be redeemed on demand. Mm. And that was available in denominations of $5, $10, and $20. So Abraham Lincoln issued the first $1 bill in 1862 as a legal tender note. Did it have George Washington on it? It did not. What did it have on it? I'm getting there. It was a large format bill and a large sized dollar bills were 7.4 inches long by 3.1 inches wide. Hmm. The size of the dollar bill now is about six by two. And if you've not seen the large format bills, they're wicked weird looking and I love them. I mean, they're they're whatever, I guess. (laughs) I remember seeing some, I think, silver notes from the 20s that were oversized. Yeah, I have some. (laughs) All right, so... But yeah, no, uh, George Washington was not the first face on the $1 bill. The first face to appear on this currency was Salmon Salmon P. Chase. Ah, the treasury guy. Yes, he was the secretary of the treasury at that time, and he was also the designer of the country's first banknotes. And he was on the, I think, $1,000 bill, too. I don't even know if that still exists, but... Yeah, we're getting there. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just really engaged with... 
your nerdy hobby. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting that he's the designer of these notes. And he's like, we could put, I don't know, like someone's face on there. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Let's just put mine for now. Uh-huh. And then when we come up with who, we'll just use it as a template. Sure. And when we figure out who should be on the bill, then we'll, oh, we didn't change it. Huh? Oh. Anyway, this is kind of interesting. JK, it's super interesting. Salmon P. Chase, I don't know if it's salmon or salmon, <laughs> I to say it, but um, Mr. Chase was a member of the Whig Party, the Liberty Party, the Free Soil Party, the Republican Party, and the Democratic Party. All at the same time? No. He was a Whig before 1941. From 41 to 48, he was part of the Liberty Party. From 48 to 54, he was part of the Free Soil Party. 54 to 68, he was a Republican. And 68 to 73, he was a Democrat. Isn't that crazy? Wow. So was he just uh, uh, an opportunistic interloper? A little bit. Mm. But also, as things changed and as parties became new things, um, you know, he went where he felt comfortable and also where he thought it would be advantageous. I see. For sure. George Washington didn't appear on the note until 1869. And interestingly enough, Martha Washington appeared on the 1886 $1 silver certificate. But she was not the first chica to appear on U.S. currency. Between 1865 and 1869, Pocahontas appeared on the back of the $20 bill. No way. The image portrayed her baptism, and it's based on a painting that hangs in the Capitol Rotunda. Interesting. So let's move on to $2 bills. Throughout the $2... (laughs) Go ahead. Throughout the $2 bill's pre-1929 life as a large-sized note, it was issued as a U.S. note, a national bank note, a silver certificate, uh, or coin note and Federal Reserve Bank note. And when the U.S. currency was changed to its current size, the $2 bill was only issued as a $2 note. Production continued until 1966 when U.S. notes were phased out in the $2 denomination, and that was discontinued until 1976 when it was reissued as a Federal Reserve note with a new reverse design. So during the Great Depression, not a lot of Americans had the money to utilize $2 notes. And in the middle of the 20th century, $2 bills were often used for betting on horses, tips at strip clubs, and for bribery. So it acquired kind of a negative reputation. (laughs) That's fascinating. According to HobbyLark.com, the U.S. Treasury reports that $1,549,052,714 worth of $2 bills were in circulation as of April of 2007. They're printed as recently as 2003. That's that's fascinating because you you talk about how the $2 bill had a kind of a nefarious reputation mm-hmm. um, and now they're used by grandparents to give to their grand grandkids for their birthdays. Well, I don't know. The last time I was at a strip club, they you changed in your your regular dollars like your 20 for well, 10 twos. When was the last time you were at a strip club? <laughs> now, I was like 10 years ago, but still. Okay. But yeah, they only use $2 bills. But because of this weird reputation, um, there's this false sense that they're rare. So people hoard them. So you don't see them in circulation. And there's really no need. um, As long as they were produced between 1976 and 2003, they're, they're not special. They're worth $2. 
And the longer you hold on to them, the less they're worth, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you you know, know, inflation. Sure, sure, sure. Now, let's talk about some bigger bills. The Treasury minted several versions of the $500 bill featuring a portrait of William McKinley on the front. The last $500 bill uh, was produced in 1945, and it was discontinued in 1969, only 24 years later. Of course, it remains legal tender. But most of the $500 notes in circulation today are in the hands of dealers and collectors. Now, is it worth more than $500 in this case? Yes. I would think so. Yeah. And um, sometimes it depends on, you know, a lot of things. You know, when it comes to dollars, there are a lot of things. We're not going to get into that. But there are some instances where specimens can command upwards of 40% the premium on the open market. The original $1,000 bill featured Alexander Hamilton on the front. And when someone realized that it could be confusing to have the same former Secretary of the Treasury on multiple denominations, he was replaced with Grover Cleveland. So like the $500 bill, it was discontinued in 1969. There was like this whole 1969 they dumped a ton of dollars. They were like, we're going to cut this down. We're going to be more efficient about this. And a lot of dollars became discontinued. There are only about 165,000 of these bills that bear Cleveland's image still in existence, they believe. The $5,000 bill was initially issued to finance the Revolutionary War and was only officially printed by the government when the Civil War began. So the bill had a portrait of James Madison. And again, 1969, Richard Nixon ordered that the bills be recalled due to the fear of criminals using them for money laundering. Gotcha. And fewer than 400 of these bills are known to exist. No kidding. So as we mentioned, uh, Salmon P. Chase, whose middle name was Portland, by the way. Nice. Yeah. And he was from New Hampshire. So I wonder if it's Portland, Maine. Like, hmm? Is there a Portland, New Hampshire? I'm sure there is. I don't know. I don't There's know. There's a Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I know that. Well, thank you for that not related <laughs> thing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Also, port is the French word for door, and New Hampshire is right next to Canada. Next door? Right next port. Or as we say in Maine, right straight over there. Right straight over there, Bob. (laughs) So Mr. Chase served as Secretary of the Treasury under Abraham Lincoln. He became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and he is remembered by most people as being the guy on the $10,000 bill. The $10,000 bill. $10,000. The largest denomination ever printed was the $10,000 bill. It really didn't get a lot of use. Just at strip clubs. Don't know. That's some dancing, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Way to go. Now, it was the largest bill printed for public consumption, but it was not the largest bill printed. $100,000 notes were printed featuring Woodrow Wilson, and that was a gold certificate. It wasn't circulated for public use. The Bureau of Engraving and Printing created them during the Great Depression in 1934, and that was for conducting official bank transactions. Oh, so it wasn't just to taunt civilians. Right. It wasn't like, oh, this exists. You'll never have it. Enjoy eating your shoe. No, no. It was because there was so little money. You could do like official banking with just these bills. You could be like, okay, here's all of our bank's dollars. Here's two bills. (laughs) 
So only about 42,000 of those bills were ever printed. But and, and I've never seen one, but oh man, I would like to. <laughs> I mean, I don't care. It's not a big deal. <laughs> So obviously, there's been a lot of changes uh, to m- money, and we could go into every bill. Every bill has an in- has a history that mm-hmm. nobody cares about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're just giddy. <laughs> In 2016, the Treasury announced that they were going to be replacing Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill with Harriet Tubman, which is super cool. It did, unfortunately, get pushed back to 2030 because they are concerned about new currency requiring uh, anti-counterfeiting technology and blah, blah, blah. But I mean... You have something to look forward to. I do. I still, I wish it was being done this year. That's all. I'm just saying. There are some designs coming up that, that should be really interesting. And and there you go. There's some interesting stuff about dollars, I guess, if you care. Whatever. <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. And now, once again, from our continuing series of really bizarre Craigslist ads. Craigslist. Craigslist ads. Here are some really bizarre Craigslist ads. (laughs) Number five, model trains and imitation crab. Want a 25 to 70 year old guy to come over and join in my model train room. Mutual touching and stuff, but nothing more than that. I also have lots of imitation crab meat in my freezer that I will need to get rid of. So you can have a bunch when you leave. You had me at crab meat. (sighs) Number four, for sale. Are my late grandmother's teeth? They're in decent condition. I'm kind of sentimentally attached. Email if you're interested or just want more information. And then there's some pictures of his grandma's teeth. Number three, free working LCD TV. Yes, it works perfectly. Yes, it has a remote. No, I won't deliver. But why is it free, you ask? My roommate thought it would be hysterical to pause porn on my TV while my girlfriend and I were on vacation for two weeks, thus burning the image into the screen. So if you don't mind a silhouette of a skinny white guy taking a load in the face from the biggest black penis in the recorded history, it's yours. Number two, free human-sized hamster wheel. Available for immediate pickup, can accommodate up to 200 pounds, fully functional, not recommended for houses with small children or animals. Also, 50 pounds of shredded newspaper available. Oh, wow. See, they could have used that hamster wheel on Parks and Rec because there was that episode where April made the design for the new mural and it had the giant human-sized hamster wheel. Not a nerd at all. And number one, 15 Snuggies. Hey, guys, I've recently come into a supply of used Snuggies. I work in a retirement home and I got them there, so there are some small stains on a few of them. And I think someone died in one of them, but no big deal. <laughs> There's also a photo of someone laying on a couch in a Snuggie. Yeah. And I'm very concerned about this person. <laughs> Are these still available? The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, 
Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Box of Oddities. The question is, why? Maddie sent us uh, an email. 
I have a bit of a bone to pick with both of you. You know that time you said, quote, Alexa, add butt plugs to my shopping list? Or really any of those times that you've said that? Up. My partner is now convinced that every time there are butt plugs on the shopping list, it's because of you two. You have unintentionally backdoor blocked me for the last time. <laughs> Love, Maddie. <laughs> <laughs> My turn. Have you ever heard of or read anything about England's bloody code? Bloody Code? Yes, Bloody mm. Code. That's what it was called. England's Bloody Code. Um, it was pre-Victorian law that uh, would sentence people to death for just about anything, really. Oh. Um, things that would get you the death sentence in pre-Victorian England. So this is essentially what everyone in my life, my whole life, has said. Like, you think you get to be the boss of people. And I'm like, yes. I So I have a bloody code. And I think that I should get to put people to death based on whatever I feel like. <laughs> yeah, that's like. Kind, kind of what it's like. And there were a lot of weird ways that you could be sentenced to death in pre-Victorian England. For example, being in the company of gypsies for more than a month. So you could stay with them for like 29 yeah. days, but yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, well, it depends. According <laughs> to historians in the mid-18th century, there, were, there was violent prejudice against gypsies in England. Mm. And there were a lot of laws that were meant to banish them from, from, the, uh, from the kingdom. The perfect example of that, a person would be sentenced to a capital offense if you were just hanging out with gypsies for more than one month. And that, like you said, it's pretty specific. Does that mean that hanging out with gypsies in February could get you killed sooner? I mean, Maybe. these are things that I have in my mind in the form of questions. Sure. Also, uh, because of that weird discrimination against gypsies, that's where the term "jip" came from. Yeah, don't jip me. Jip is a derogatory term, mm. and it's you know I grew up just thinking it was just another word, but right. as I got older, that is a term that they used to because they believed that gypsies were less than human and that it's vile. Well, that they were thieves. My question is, why was one month the maximum exposure that one could have to gypsies before, you know, like you said, you, you could up to 29 days, mm. that'd be fine. But what if you did like 15 days and then took a few days off and Ooh. then did 15 more days? Like, it doesn't have to be consecutive. Is it like when you want to move to a new country and you have to live there, uh, you know, for a specific length of like time? Doing a border run right. for your passport. Yeah, I'm not sure. But um, in those times... Murdering the king carried the same penalty as hanging out with gypsies wow. for a month. Wow, yeah. that's terrible. Another way you could get sentenced to death was by damaging Westminster Bridge. Oh. Many landmarks were protected under the threat of capital punishment, but Westminster Bridge was especially safeguarded because of its strategic importance. They wouldn't even let dogs cross this bridge. It opened in 1750 as only the second bridge in London that crossed the Thames. A compendious digest of the statute law from 1787 lists punishment for damaging London bridges. Westminster was the only one where willfully destroying or damaging meant you were, quote, guilty of a felony without benefit of clergy. Wow. That's that's intense. Not letting dogs walk across? Were they afraid of they were going to crap on the bridge? Maybe. Is that, Maybe I mean, they... because there's some people that might, too. You can't. <laughs> I've seen it. 
You could also be uh, sentenced to death in pre-Victorian uh, London during the Bloody Code for cutting down young trees. Oh. Court documents from 1821 reveal the thinking behind this one. According to Ranker, a man executed for cutting down young trees in a plantation. He had also set fire to corn stacks, uh, slashed fine horses and cows with oh a knife. Gosh. But it was cutting down the trees that the judge found most offensive. Quote, cutting down young trees from malice to the owner is as great a proof of malignity in a criminal and maybe a much greater injury to the owner. For wealth may be replaced, corn and cattle, but the loss of trees is irreparable, both to the owner and to the public. Oh, wow. So don't be knocking down people's saplings. I kind of support this. (laughs) (laughs) If you were an unmarried mother and you gave birth to a stillborn child and you did not report that, they would hang you. You had to immediately disclose that you gave birth to a stillborn child. Because if you did not... Forget that you might be going through some emotional distress (laughs) right now. It's most important that you're held accountable to the government. The government would say that if you did not report it, then they assumed that you killed the child. But that's only if you're unwed. Because if you're wed, then you have a man to watch over you and make sure that that's not the the craziness that you're up to. Exactly. God damn God. Married women were considered too virtuous to do such a thing. Are you fucking kidding me? Okay, sorry. But hey, even Thomas Jefferson was a critic of this insane and cruel law, he called it. Oh, see, that's nice. And Thomas Jefferson really, you know, his standards. He was a mixed bag, wasn't he? (laughs) Also, be careful when you write letters, because if you wrote a letter that was even vaguely threatening, they'd put you to death for it. Oh, Wow. One of the first people to be hanged for sending a threatening letter in England was Jephthah Big. I love that name. Jephthah Big. <coughs> Stop it. And now you can say whatever garbage you want all the time on social media, like constantly, with no threat of death. So Jephthah Big in 1729. Uh, seven tween. Seven tween. Jephthah in seven tween. He was hanged. Um, because he, quote, tried to demand money with menaces. Oh, oh, like you better give me my money or else kind of deal. It became a capital offense in 1754 to send any threatening letter, regardless of whether or not the sender was attempting to blackmail. It wasn't just about threats to civilian lives. The law was also intended to apply to those who sent threatening letters in the name of social protest. Okay. So you had to word things very carefully. Right. Maybe that's where, like, the whole, it would be a shame if something were to happen to you. (laughs) Yeah. That's That's not a threat. It's an expression of concern. Also, stealing from a shipwreck. Oh. That would get you executed. You're probably thinking in your mind, how did uh, stealing from shipwrecks become a capital crime? One word answer, lobbyists, insurance companies, uh, shipping merchant owners, the ship-owning community lobbied for a law in England in 1753 that made looting wreckage punishable by death, even if no one aboard survived. Oh, wow. So even back in those days, they would have been after the serenity. Is that a Firefly reference? You nerd. Sometimes the military even intervened to enforce the law. About a dozen were wounded and three killed during a shootout in 1782 uh, between soldiers and the wreckers is what they called 
people who looted shipwrecks. And finally, if you were a child in pre-Victorian England and you were a problem child, you could be sentenced to death if they could find, quote, strong evidence of malice in you. Well, I mean... I I see I can see how they would have thought like okay if this isn't something that he can grow out of or she can get better from mm-hmm. you know and him. we know that the state of uh, psychology in those days was just top notch top notch yeah they could just tell by the bumps in your head whether or not you should live or die <laughs> right pretty much capital crime was intended for children between the ages of seven and fourteen. <gasps> Oh, wow. Well, I mean, then again, like kids got married very, yep. very young. So they were considered adults or, or adult-y a lot sooner than, than we consider them well, adult-y now. People died a lot younger, too. The That's average lifespan too. was somewhere in the mid-30s, well, the 40s. probably because they were stealing from shipwrecks. <laughs> and getting hung. So in order to prove strong evidence of malice, prosecutors had to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that the child did not have the ability to tell right from wrong. A young boy whose name was John Dean, he was eight or nine years old, was executed for arson. But that's the only one on record. Okay. Uh, Throughout the bloody code era, there were indeed cases of kids aged 12 to 18 who were executed for malice crimes, ranging from housebreaking to rape and murder. In 1908, the minimum age for execution was raised to 18. Whew. That's a tough one. That's a... Yeah. That's a rough one to get on board with. It is. So... There are several reasons why you should be grateful that you did not live in pre-Victorian England. The bloody code, everyone. (laughs) That's it. That's all I've got for you. Wow, that was really interesting. I like how you decided to end it on a wicked bummer. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yes, also they murdered children. Yeah, I thought that was was dramatic. (laughs) Way to stick the landing, so to speak. You guys are the best. We love hanging out with you. Thank you so much for spending time with us. If you'd like to support the Box of Oddities, you can do so by subscribing to the premium channel. You get uh, the episode a day early. You get it ad-free. You get a bonus episode every month. And you get uh, access to the back channel, which is direct contact with Cat and myself. You can get the details at theboxofoddities.com. There you can also find the link where you can get our merch the pride shirt through the end of this month all proceeds from the pride shirt will go to the trevor project you can find details about that on our social media as well and we'll see you next time until then keep flying that freak flag fly it proudly you beautiful freak and so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands therefore it's been requested by those to whom i report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.
Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.